there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I grew up in a home where we said the Lord's Prayer every day. And I'm very grateful for that, but naturally, we six children just rattled it off, and it never meant much of anything to me as a child. And my parents took the view that since your children's heads are going to be stuffed with all sorts of nonsense, they might as well be stuffed with something that's worth remembering. And we have that prayer and many hymns and scripture verses in our heads because of the faithfulness of those parents. But the familiarity that we have with the Lord's Prayer it opens the very real possibility that we won't really pay attention to what it is we're saying. And the older I get, the more comprehensive I see this prayer to be, and the more meaning it has for me. So often when I pray, and you probably have the same experience, when I pray for other people, I would say probably nine, nine people out of ten, I really don't know what specific needs they may be facing. And of course, I don't know the, all the needs of any, any of them. So to pray the Lord's Prayer with that person in mind helps me. Samuel Taylor Coleridge said that there are truths which are commonly considered so true as to lose all the powers of truth, and they lie bedridden in the dormitory of the soul. A wonderful metaphor. These truths that become so familiar that they lose all the power of truth lie bedridden in the dormitory of our souls. And perhaps there's, there are some here this morning of whom that's true. You've been saying this prayer all your life, and perhaps, like me, didn't give it a whole lot of thought. It is a formal prayer, it is a repetitive prayer, and I grew up thinking that only my spontaneous prayers were the ones that really would matter. I don't know where I got that idea, but I've learned that that's not true. I can pray these wonderful prayers from the scriptures and invest them with my own uh, sincerity, honesty, need, and with the acknowledgement always of the mystery that will be involved in God's answering those prayers. All of us, I suppose, have stories of how God miraculously and wonderfully answered prayers. We got a yes from God, and all of us also have stories when, about when the answer was no. And when the answer is no, that is the time when we really begin to take stock of what we are doing when we pray. As Nancy said, prayer is a mystery. And I wouldn't claim to understand it or to be able to unpack for you this morning that mystery. But it is in the perplexities and the profundities that we come face to face with the mystery of who God is and what is involved in 
the coming of his kingdom and the accomplishment of his will. Just one personal illustration, many years ago, my husband Jim Elliott went with four other missionaries into very dangerous territory with the hope of reaching a savage tribe of Indians with the gospel. You can imagine how earnestly we five wives prayed for the safety of our husbands. And they were all speared to death. This was God's answer. The answer was no when we prayed for physical safety. But in the years that have intervened since then, I have been given glimpses, and I think they were only glimpses yet, in comparison with all that was going on in, in the kingdom of heaven, in God's saying no to that prayer. But everywhere I go, I meet people who tell me that their lives have been affected and even changed and shaped by the testimony of those men. Now, surely that is part of the reason why God said no. That can't be all of it. And it's none of my business what all God's reasons were. So I once saw a book with the title, Prayer, Getting Things from God. I would say that's a very elementary view of prayer. We do get things from God, and probably most of the things we get from God we never ask for and we never thank him for. But we do get things. But it's, it's much more than that, and I think when we study the Lord's Prayer, we'll see how much more is involved. Here we are, finite beings, touching through the operation of prayer the infinite. Here we are on earth, we're speaking to God who is in heaven. Remember that the disciples who were Jewish and had been praying and had understood prayer from the Old Testament were the ones who said to Jesus, teach us to pray. Undoubtedly, they had seen in Jesus and heard from his prayers, which are recorded for us, some of them in the Gospels, something very different, something totally other than what they were used to. And when they asked him to teach them to pray, this is the prayer he gave them. Our Father, who art in heaven. The first thing I want us to consider is our position when we pray. And those few words, our Father, who art in heaven, define for me who I am and where I am. I'm his child. I'm here. He's in heaven. But the wonderful thing is that he's also here. So he gives us this unspeakable and unfathomable privilege of touching the infinite and the transcendent and the eternal through the medium of prayer. We ordinary, finite, very physical, very visible, very down-to-earth people are given the privilege of moving things, of shaking things through prayer. One of the things that I have to remember constantly when I'm praying for my own little list, Lord, I want you to do this for me and this for my grandchildren and this for my daughter, we are members of a family. 
And it's not just my family that God's interested in. He's engineering a whole universe. We are members of a flock. And he has the entire flock in mind. And so whatever might be good for me might be bad for them. And whatever is bad for me might be good for them. And so I have to take my position. The first thing that I want to do when I pray is to put myself consciously and reverently in the presence of my Father, my heavenly Father. He's in charge. You know how it was when you were a child and children would talk about, well, my daddy can do this and my daddy can do that. And you felt that your daddy could do anything and your daddy could fix anything and he could solve all your problems. That's the way I felt about my daddy. Some of you probably didn't even have a daddy or maybe you didn't have that kind. But you know what daddies ought to be like. And our Heavenly Father is the one who's in charge. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother and sister, in his hands. And he's got everything that concerns us and everybody for whom we pray in his hands. This prayer, and I should tell you that I, I will just be speaking about the first three petitions this Sunday and the rest of it next Sunday. And the first three positions, the first three petitions lift us up into the heavenlies. And the last part of the prayer brings us right down where we live. But it's a good thing to start with the heavenlies. Who we are in relation to God. Let's not waste a whole lot of time in our prayer life worrying about who I am. If we get to know who God is and think of ourselves as his child and direct our energies toward knowing God, we're going to find out a whole lot more about ourselves than we'd like to hear, probably. So that's my position. I am a child, and I come to him in prayer. The second thing is adoration. Hallowed be thy name. Hallowed means holy. Why should we pray, hallowed be thy name? He is holy. Nothing that I can ever do or say is going to change that. But here we touch again on the mystery. We are given the privilege, this incredible privilege of, by our own voluntary will, participating in the hallowing of his name here in Christ Church, here in Hamilton, here in Massachusetts, here in the world. And as we get to the next two petitions, I'll try to be a little bit more specific about what I mean, about what we can do. But what we're doing when we say, hallowed be thy name, is adoring him, just worshiping in silence and humility before him. Now, the modern mind really can't make head or tail out of an, a petition like that. But my Bible tells me that I am here for the praise and the glory of his grace. I don't really know what that means. I don't have to know. But I thank God and I pray that it may be a reality every minute of every hour of every day in my life to be to the praise of the glory of his grace. The whole creation is for his praise. And my husband and I had the very exciting 
privilege of going to Africa in December, and we had several of those incredible experiences where you see the animals practically eyeball to eyeball. The wild animals, it's no zoo. When you go to Kenya, as many of you know, looking an elephant literally in the face, not much further away than Nancy sitting in this chair here. There was a stone wall between us and there was a slit in the stone wall and the elephant was paying absolutely no attention to me, but the more I studied that face, if you can call it a face, whatever that is, the more I said, O oh Lord, how marvelous are thy works, in wisdom hast thou made them all. And the less I could believe that this thing really exists. The more you look at a hippopotamus or a rhino or an elephant, the less possible it seems to be that there is such a creature. And this elephant was standing there glorifying God by being an elephant, doing exactly what an elephant is made to do. And everything in the universe glorifies God by doing exactly what God made it to do, whether it's a planet or a proton. It glorifies God by being what it is. But we human beings were given the privilege of choosing not to glorify him. We could not choose to love him and to worship him without also being given the freedom to choose to defy him. And that is, of course, exactly what happened way back in the Garden of Eden. Mystery, incomprehensibility surrounds us when we, when we pray. And the more we marvel at this whole question of hallowed be thy name, the more awed and humbled we will be, I think, to recognize that God asks us to pray. He commands us to pray. He wants to hear our voices. And we're told very plainly in the scripture, your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask him. And so the very natural question would arise, what is the point of asking? Well, for one thing, it brings me to the Father's knee in adoration. And adoration, the taking of my position before God, my praying, hallowed be thy name, is the essential preparation for all right action. It is the essential preparation for the next two petitions, which are, to me, the zingers. Um, we can get very ethereal and vague and saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, uh, because it's not going to have any very practical implications for us, we think, until we start really thinking. I think it was Sir Joshua Reynolds who said, If you tell people, if you make people think they're thinking, they will love you. If you make them think, they will hate you. Well, humanism and sentimentalism collapse in the face of these awesome verities. When I pray, hallowed be thy name, then the following petition is where it's going to get me. Thy kingdom come. Now, God's kingdom is coming. Again, I am 
asked to participate in the coming of his kingdom through my prayers. And so I kneel before him and I say, thy kingdom come. How may I hallow his name? Well, in, First Corinthians, uh, in Colossians 1, 13, we read that we have been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Now think about that one. Delivered from the power of darkness, translated. We have been translated into the kingdom of his dear son. How do we live in that kingdom? How do our lives look? What kind of a difference does Jesus Christ make on Monday morning, on Saturday night, on Wednesday afternoon? Thy kingdom come. In order for me to pray this petition, I'm forced to lay my life before God and say, Lord, here I am, all of me, for your kingdom. Do anything you want to do with me and through me at any cost. I'm an instrument. The Bible tells us that we are no longer to allow our bodies to be instruments of evil, but yield yourselves to God, he says, and that is an act of the will, isn't it? That is a choice. Yield yourselves to God as instruments of righteousness. And I'm sure many of you also know the prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, another one of those prayers that we've memorized. I have that framed on the wall of my study, and it's a prayer that I use very often. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith where there is despair, hope, where there is sorrow, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console. We need that particular part of the prayer in this day and age when we're encouraged to complain and to ask for comfort. Teach me not so much to be to want to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born again to eternal life. So when I offer to God literally everything that I am and have and do and suffer for the coming of his kingdom, and I do believe that I cannot honestly pray that thy kingdom come unless the Lord is willing, the Lord knows that in my heart I am prepared to pay the price. And the price of the coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is the cross. The cross. What was wrong with, with the world was so terrible that it took the crucifixion of the spotless Son of God to remedy it. And he says, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to, you have a choice. But the conditions are you must give up your right to yourself. You must take up your cross and follow me. And that means death 
to myself. Death to my plans and purposes. Not that God doesn't often fulfill our deepest hopes and plans and purposes, but I lay them before him and say, Lord, if these fit into the coming of your kingdom, grant them. If they don't, scratch them. And I give him my list and my prayers, and the bottom line is, thy kingdom come. Lord, do whatever is needed to bring your kingdom into this world. And it is a declaration of my dependence upon him and my agreement with him and my desire to participate in and cooperate with God in his redemptive work in the world. What am I prepared to do in order to participate in and cooperate with him in that saving work? How shall I pray thy kingdom come unless I hold the world to be his to begin with? The whole world is his. I am his, and he is mine. And so back to that prayer that I mentioned earlier, when God said no, what do you suppose I said when I got word that my husband was dead? Just what you would have said, but why, Lord? A young, obedient, strong man. There were five young, obedient, dedicated Christian men who wanted to take the gospel. And that still small voice says, trust me, I am working on the bringing in of a kingdom. And I have a whole lot of other people in mind besides you and your fatherless child. And I meet those people everywhere I go. But see, that's only a small thing. You don't necessarily have that kind of a story. Very often God gives us no explanations ever here on earth because he is working on this tremendous, overarching and all-embracing plan of bringing the kingdom. Will you participate with me, he says. Will you, by your prayers, do what's needed in order to bring this to pass? So, as Evelyn Underhill said, the world will never be saved by evolution, but by incarnation. Do you know what that means? Incarnation simply means the infleshing of the Godhead. When Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, he took upon himself human flesh, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Now, if we could hear the stories of how some of you became Christians, I'm sure that there would be an individual, a man or a woman, in whom the Word was made flesh for you. And you watched that person's life, and you thought, what has she got? What is it that makes that man different? That's what I want. And so I pray, thy kingdom come, and I realize that I am asking that the word of God, the glory of God, the majesty of God, the truth of God may be enfleshed in me. Because when Jesus went back to heaven, he left the responsibility with his disciples. And you and I are disciples. 
The world has no other Bible to read but you and me. And they are going to scrutinize the lives of us Christians. I hear Christians complain sometimes because they're expected to be perfect. Well, God knows we're very far from being perfect, and I like that bumper sticker that says sinners are not perfect, they're just forgiven. We're people who know we can't make it on our own. That is one of the differences between Christians and the rest of the world. We know we can't make it on our own. We know we're sinners, and we need that cross and what was accomplished on that cross. But the world has a right to look for some significant difference in our lives. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And the la that is the last petition that I want to talk about this morning. Thy will be done. And it's been my experience many times that when I pray, thy will be done, it involves the undoing of my will. It means my will be undone. Amy Carmichael was a missionary in India, but when she was only about three years old, she heard from her adults, adult parents and friends that God answers prayer, and so she decided to test the validity of that statement. And the one thing that she wanted more than anything else in the world was blue eyes. And so she got down on her knees beside her bed one night and she prayed that God would change those brown eyes to blue eyes and leaped from bed in the morning, pushed a chair over to the mirror, jumped up, looked in the mirror into the same brown eyes. And she told her children many, many years later, she had hundreds of Indian children. She was a single woman, never had any children of her own, but she was the mother to a family of about 700 Indian children. And she told them that she didn't really remember whether somebody had said these actual words to her or whether God answered her prayer in this way. But the words came to her, isn't no an answer? No is an answer. When we make a request, you have three possibilities. Yes, no, or wait. Well, maybe you could say maybe, too. But she didn't know that years later, in that kingdom that God was working on way back before the foundation of the world, God knew that that little three-year-old girl would become a missionary in India, and there would be times when her life would be on the line, and it would be extremely important. It would be a matter of life and death for her to be taken as an Indian. She always dressed as an Indian. She had dark hair. She could never have passed for an Indian for two seconds if she'd had blue eyes. Now, God showed her a reason. But what if he doesn't? What did I ask for? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth in me. How? as it is in heaven. And how is it done in heaven? Perfectly. Absolutely perfectly. No yeah buts or what ifs. And how many times do we read the Bible or pray and we hear the Lord speaking to us and we say yeah but or what if? And what about, there are no yeah buts 
no what-ifs in heaven. His will is done gladly, joyfully, perfectly, continuously. What a prayer. I mean, did you ever stop to think that that is what you're praying when you say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven? God is going to bring that right down where you live. What's the use of my praying for the world if in my heart, in my mind, in my emotions, I'm not saying, thy will be done. Change me, Lord. Transform me. Make me easier for Lars to live with. Make me the kind of a wife that's pleasant to live with. Make me the kind of a wife who makes his job easy and pleasant, not hard to live with. And the words will ring in my mind forever. When I was 14 years old, the headmistress of the school in which I was a boarder, she said to me, you are hard to live with. <laughs> well, she wasn't my roommate, but if she knew that I was hard to live with, I hated to think what my poor roommates had to put up with, and I had two or three of them. So when I pray, thy will be done, this is self-abandonment. This is a total relinquishment of my rights, of myself, of my plans, and my purposes, my dreams, and my hopes, and I say, Lord, I want one thing above everything else in the world, and that is that your will be done in me. Now, it's one thing to pray this for myself. It is a very different matter to pray this for my daughter and for my grandchildren, as you parents know. We can take whatever's going to be dished out, we think, to us. Can we take whatever God is going to dish out? And that's a terrible expression, really. I've had people say to me, well, it scares me to hear you talk like this, because what if God did to me what he did to you? And it's very interesting that just this week I was at my dentist, and I said to him, what are you going to do to me next? And he said, you mean four. Well, that is, that is exactly what I've been saying for years. God has never, this is my answer when people say, what if he did to me what he did to you? God has never did, done anything to me that wasn't for me. A little child, does he have any idea why you tell him he cannot have an ice cream cone at 5 o'clock in the afternoon? You never give me anything, he says. You never let me have anything. You hate me. Well, who talks like that? Nobody but us. God doesn't answer my prayers. He does these things to me. No, he doesn't. He loves me. God is love. His very nature, his essence, is love. And he has never done anything to or for, he has never done anything to anybody that wasn't for them. So I am declaring to God, I am of one mind with you, Lord. I want to be. I want you to purify and correct my thinking and my desires so that they are in harmony. I want to align my will with yours, whatever it means. In January, I was in the delivery room with my daughter when she had her seventh baby. Can you imagine 
Maybe some of you mothers, I have been present at many other childbirths, but I had never been with my daughter. These words were going through my mind every minute. As far as we knew, everything was fine. But what if the baby was dead? What if it was deformed? The suffering that my daughter would have to go through. I felt as if I couldn't stand it. But I go back to the nature of God. Our Father, He is my Father. He is her Father. If all is not well, humanly speaking, all will be well in heaven. All will be well in the kingdom. As Julian of Norwich said, all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. Well, she has a, a healthy baby. She had a safe delivery. What if he dies? We have to face these things, don't we? When we pray, <clears throat> thy will be done. Lord, I know that your will is perfect. I know that it is love. And so I bring the kingdom of my will over which I have control. God created us with this marvelous property of willing to which he did, which he did not give to any other creature. The tides cannot will to come up and go down. The blue jays cannot will to behave like a cardinal, and the elephants are not the giraffes. Well, you and I can't be anything but human beings either, but as human beings, we have been given the will to choose to obey him, to love him, to participate in his kingdom, to say, thy will be done in a way that no other creature has ever been given. And so the price of my commitment is the cross. That was the price of Jesus' commitment. He says, take up your cross and follow me. What does it mean? It means that the cross is going to cut across some of my human desires. As someone has said, when the will of God cuts the will of man, somebody has to die. And Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so when that cross cuts into your heart, please don't forget that last wonderful phrase, he loved me and gave himself for me. God loved me. God sent his son to die. And he says to me, will you follow me? Will you abandon yourself because you cannot take up the cross without abandoning yourself. And remember that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had to say no to himself. He prayed, if it is possible, let this cup pass. And God's answer was no. And then he said, if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And if I am going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, that has to be my prayer, not my will. And I want to read you just a wonderful little quotation from Edwin, Edward B. Pusey. He says, by daily practice in slight 
crosses of our own will, we learn the lesson our Lord taught, not as I will, but as thou. All the things whereof men daily complain may perfect thee in the will of God. The changes of the seasons. Ever hear anybody complain about the weather? Certainly not in Massachusetts. <laughs> Bodily discomforts or ailments. Nobody ever talks about them. Petty slights. Little jealousies. Unevenness of temper in those with whom thou livest. Misunderstandings. Censures of thy faith or practice, severe judgments, thanklessness of those thou wouldst benefit, interruptions in what thou wouldst do, oppressiveness or distraction of thy labors, whatever thou canst think of, wherein others fret themselves, and still more thyself, therein seest thou how to be of one will with God. A newspaper published a question in England asking readers to respond to a quest this question, what's wrong with the world? And G.K. Chesterton's response was, dear sir, I am yours sincerely. <laughs> it's a dagger, isn't it? A dagger under the fifth rib. I am what's wrong with the world because I am a sinner. And there's no use thinking I'm going to change the world until I let God change me. Thy will be done. I cannot cure a thousand people. I can only bring my own will under the lordship of Jesus Christ. All that I am, all that I have, all that I do, that means literally everything from writing letters to peeling onions to ironing a shirt to getting up in front of people of my own church, which scares me to death. Everything is for the sake of the kingdom and for the glory of God, which means it has to be in harmony with his will. Ugo Bassi said, measure thy life by loss and not by gain, not by the wine drunk, but by the wine poured forth. For love's strength standeth in love's sacrifice. And he that suffereth most hath most to give. We speak to God first as our Father. We adore him when we say, hallowed be thy name. We declare our desire to participate in the coming of his kingdom when we pray, thy kingdom come. And we totally relinquish our rights to ourselves, and we take up the cross when we say, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today, and will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, Remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>